Welcome to episode four of Stories from the Atlantic, where rain is turning to sleet as I roll into the parking lot of Litla Kaffistovan, a self-pump gas station and diner that is closed for the night. In this episode, it's 9 p.m. on December 17, 2017. In four days, the shortest day of the year means four hours of sunlight in the south of Iceland, while some towns and villages in the north don't see the sun until January or February, mostly due to steep mountains and the perhaps unfortunate angle of valleys. On the parking lot, bright lights shine on the white wood building with its green roof, a fitting color considering the lava fields all around, are covered with green moss all year round. The LED lights above the gas pumps catch my attention, casting a kind of high definition light on the snowy scene that I'm just about to drive away from. I'm on my way east for a short guiding job in the morning, after which I will visit farmers on the south coast as part of a documentation project I was getting started. I drove through the snowstorm that fell on the lava fields covering the area leading to Hetlisede, a 374 meter tall mountain pass connecting the capital to the flat lowlands to the east. At the turnoff to the geothermal power plant, nestled against the opposite side of a clearly defined edge of a lava field, the wind suddenly changed. It was like a soft updraft for about five seconds, making the snow seem to float weightless in the dark sky, barely falling, like gravity lost. But as soon as I reached the hill leading to the top of the pass, the snow returned to its natural state of blowing sideways. The mountain pass, Hetlisede, is synonymous these days with the highway and the occasional closure due to snow and stormy weather, but also with a geothermal power plant, Hetlisedarvirkjun, a 300 megawatt, what is called green energy, while perhaps much greener than coal would be a bit more accurate. The steam billowing out from drill holes is a fraction of the pollution of coal or gas, but does contain sulfur gases, and the fast emptying of water in the drill holes has been an issue that needs solving to sustain the drilling. But the snowstorm hides any side of the drills, and I make my way slowly across lava fields with names like Kristnitukurhraun and Svinarhraun, Christianity Conversion Lava Field and Pig Lava Field, respectively, until reaching the S-shaped curvy hill of Kampar or Crests. By then I've covered about 40 kilometers with about 120 to go before I can go to sleep in the back of my car in a built-in bed, comfy in the storm. I listen to podcasts like Reply All as I drive past the various little waypoints that mark the progress of any journey. The near painfully bright lights of the greenhouses of Kveragerdi, the lit up crosses of the cemetery of Kvotsrandakirkja to the right, that's Icelandic for church, followed by the first and only speed camera on the whole south coast. Soon after that, the 52 white wooden crosses erected in 2006, a memorial and reminder of the 52 fatalities from road accidents on this part of the highway. To the left, there appears the quarry of Thorustaðanámur, where massive trucks climb a ridiculously steep road up the mountain, a favorite hiking trail for locals in the afternoon. Next, the bridge over Ölvusá River, its precursor having collapsed with two cars on it in 1944 after serving mostly foot traffic and animals since 1891. After two minutes of slow driving through Selfos, 
a town of 7,556 inhabitants, the traffic slows down and the flatness begins. A kind of silence. As a kid driving east with my parents, the few times we visited our farming relatives, this was the slow and boring part. The southern lowland, or Söderlands Unterlendith, stretches from the sea towards the highlands, creating by far the most fertile and agreeable landscape for farming. It's a landscape where ditches draw straight lines across the former wetlands, now pastures or fields of grass only, cut twice a year, wrapped up in circular plastic bales, feed for livestock. From sleet to rain, rain to sleet, and the road turned slushy as I drove past the historical sites of the Viking sagas, seeming to whisper the well-known saying, when heroes rode through the shires, a cultural nostalgia, both idolized and criticized, for its self-destruction through revenge. The last leg of the journey was the drive past or under the Eyjafjallajökull mountains, which were hidden in the rainy night, aside from the large boulders strewn across the hills, leading up towards rough and broken cliffs. The topography is beautifully manifested in the simple name of a set of farms, simply named Steinar, or stones. As I reach my destination for the night, I switch off the engine, read a chapter in Alain de Botton's book, How Proust Can Save Your Life, and go to sleep. The morning after, I did a few hours of work, guiding a small group on the busy glacier Solimajukutl, and then spent the afternoon talking to farmers in the area, a project I was trying to get off the ground. I learned a lot during the day, as you often do when you take time to listen to people, and over coffee I was told how a certain wind direction can be problematic around the circular mountain Pietursé in the south. Farms are located on the south and east side of the mountain, but the shape of it magnifies the winds from the glacier north of it, growing to strength, capable of flipping cars or hay wagons over. As darkness fell and photographing farms became impossible, I headed for the village of Vik with no plan for the night. As I drove down from the short mountain pass of Reynisfjall, the small village of Vik appeared like an oasis, out of darkness and into the light. Its growth in the last years has been phenomenal due to tourism, with no end in sight. Work was still going on close to 7 p.m., and business seemed booming on all fronts. Every hotel is close to fully booked these days. The new grocery store has a steady flow of customers, mostly tourists, and the same applies for the bistro, the newly renovated clothing and souvenir market, a place where woolen sweaters and the most modern and high-end outdoor gear hang side-by-side along with cheaper generic souvenirs, the puffin reigning supreme. The highway runs straight through the town, or village, which at the start of the 20th century had about 80 inhabitants, while now close to 600 live in Vik, the majority of the whole county itself. The area around the county, named Myrdal, as per the name Viki Myrdal, used to be one of the poorest in the country, manifesting in high percentage of farms with more than one family, and a brilliant architectural solution for heating, having the houses on two floors and the livestock on the lower floor. During the 1880s, cold weather due to sea ice, a former and frequent enemy of Iceland, resulted in crop failure and starvation. Grains were collected in Denmark to save the starving island nation, then a Danish colony. 
the delivery part was partly flawed, as the grains sat in storage in two ports, far from the crisis, waiting for the starving people to fetch it themselves, partly a result of there being no harbors nearby. The relief effort failed, but these days the area of Vik is a place of plenty in most respects. Its history has for the last decade at least been formed by tourism, for better or for worse, as any quick change in a society has its pros and cons. My focus, on the other hand, was on nothing more than sleeping, in my car, somewhere. Though perhaps not illegal, it's frowned upon in most areas, for various reasons. I'm not sure I have an elevator pitch for my own home-on-wheels lifestyle when traveling the country, photographing, doing interviews, or working on projects, aside from the simple fact that I could not afford to do it any other way. And then the idea that what I'm doing is somehow historically important, a collection of historical data, a writing of history. But no one seemed to care, nor bothered to interrogate me on that stormy night when I foolishly parked the car in a sandblast zone by the beach. The savings I made on accommodation might have been offset by how much of the car's top coat was lost through sandblasting. But before that happened, I drove through the village. A rainbow flag fluttering in the wind outside a small wooden house had caught my attention. Curious, I stepped inside of what was a guest house. Enveloped in silence, a Buddha statue and a skull of a ram surrounded by candles on the far wall, open kitchen to the left, and a small living room on the right. I stood there for a moment until I called a number on the wall, after which Maune appeared, the caretaker. A young Frenchman with a self-chosen Icelandic name, he told me of the changes he has seen in Vík since his arrival. I guess, you know, it's happened in the past four or five years. Uh, when I first came here uh, five years ago, it was, it was not like that. You know, there, was, there were not so many young people. There was just this tiny supermarket and uh, it didn't look like there was so much activity. You know, I didn't see as many foreigners uh, Except for, so I was working at the hostel at the time and we were a few volunteers working there. At least not as many foreigners as, as now. And uh, I think it just happened in the past five years or so. Uh, and the guy at the time who was taking care of the information center, Eric was trying to make it into a more like, uh, he was trying to like set things up for tourists and make, you know, life better for tourists and for, for locals alike, you know. That's, I think that's always been, that's, uh, for me, that's always how I perceived the, the way of life in Vic is that people are not just trying to make money. They try to balance between, you know, good stuff for tourists and good stuff for locals. The question of actual benefits to any local population from any fast-growing industry is acutely relevant for a place like Vic. I don't know exactly how it was before, but in my perception... Uh, right now in Vic, there is much more to do than uh, when I started living here, actually. So, for example, we have this uh, this woman at the information center right now who's called Beata. She's from Poland. Uh, and uh, she is constantly trying to organize things. Like, for example, for Christmas, she organized this Christmas market um, in, the, in the museum that's across the street. Uh, she also, like... The museum also opened with the previous person at the information center, who is called Disa. 
who was also very very dynamic and tried to to get people involved into the like the life in Vic, you know. Like there's a, a little group of very actually active people. There's also Brian, the music teacher in town. He's constantly trying to get people together to do concerts and things like that. So there's the choir. There's a choir in Vic, and they meet every Wednesday. And I was actually a part of it for a little while until I started working full time here because now, so the practice is in the evening and it's around the time when people start arriving here. So around check-in time. So I can't go there anymore but there's still uh, the choir every, every Wednesday. There's often a flip side to jobs that become a foundation for a community, yet limit the opportunity for social activity, a trend not limited to tourism, but certainly not lessened by it. I asked about the people that come to Vik for work and what the atmosphere is like. Like, that's the thing, is that most people who come and work here, uh, I know a lot of young people, people my age or, or slightly younger, like in their 20s, who uh, came here at first just to, you know, just for a try, and now they don't want to leave anymore because there's like such a good community spirit, such a good atmosphere. It's not you're not just here to make money; you're here also because like there are so many young people here, and we're like all enjoying what we do. Along with, or better yet, part of the enjoyment, is the creation of even deeper roots. Uh, this this Spanish friend of mine, uh, this guy I know who works in a restaurant, and he uh, he just had a baby with a girl from the village, with an Icelander. There's this uh, these two uh, these Polish couple also who are having a baby. There are just babies coming everywhere in, in Vig right now. You know, I have two Icelandic friends who are having having a baby as as well. You know, it's just like you know people are settling down here. But it's not a completely straightforward process to settle in Vik. As Maone points out when I ask him about the challenges facing those that hope to settle in this growing village by the North Atlantic Ocean. Housing, of course, is a problem because uh, it's a small town and uh, so it's, it's very, it was very hard for a while to, to find housing in Vik. Uh, it's like there are 300 people, well, there were 300 people living here. The population has increased by 11%. There are just not enough buildings to house everybody, plus all the tourists who come and stop here. On the other hand, are the pros, or what the village has going for it? Easy is that there's just so much work here. This is just... Vik is in right in the middle of the south coast. Recently in Iceland... So the thing is that Iceland has become so expensive for foreigners that a lot of people don't do like two, three-week trips anymore. They just do one week... And what do they do? They do Reykjavik, the Golden Circle, and the South Coast. They go to the Glacier Lagoon and back. And so a lot of people stop in Vik, actually, more and more. So there's a need for manpower here, for people coming to work here. And uh, the pay is good. The place is nice. You know, it's a small town and there's still lots of nature around. It's only three hours away from Reykjavik. You know, if you want to go for a weekend to Reykjavik, it's pretty easy. The community and the tourists are in most cases completely separate and mutually exclusive groups socially, as the sheer numbers and short stays in most hotels and guesthouses are not conducive to more than a superficial connection, though there are exceptions. I've really met people with with whom I've I've kept contact. I've actually met my girlfriend here. She was a guest here. She stayed for five days and... uh, and we kept contact, and now we're together. And uh, and she's coming back next summer. I'm I'm going to see her in the U.S. soon. In this house, there are a lot of people. Like for example, I have two other friends who 
came here two two years ago, I think, a year and a half ago. And now they're coming for Christmas and they're spending a week here just with me, just because we're friends. You know, it happens sometimes, but for most tourists who just pass through the town, if I don't see them at work, you know, it's, yeah, of course, I'm not going to get any connection. And so the community is kind of, of course, separate from, from that, I think, for this reason that they're just passing through. But the question still remains of why he, a Frenchman, came to Vic, chose to stay in Vic, and if not here, now, what would he be doing? I'd probably be dead. Why? <laughs> because uh, when I came to Iceland, I, was, I had been living in Paris for four years. So in Paris, France, capital city, I was studying uh, translation, so I was in a, like one of the top translation schools in France. And uh, so, no, I had been there for four, for three years at that point. And my third year was, I was working like one week in school and one week in the translation company. It was just like, you know, to get introduced to the like working world kind of, they had this program we did one week in school, one week in a company. And I was in this kind of cliche company, like in a big tower next to a motorway and next to a highway. And, uh, you know, basically everybody hated each other. There were, while I was there during one year, there were five people who quit. Uh, the atmosphere was just awful. It was just like, you're not here to do quality quality work. You're just here to make money, to make to give us money, to give money to uh, the shareholders, basically. And uh, I've, during all that time, you know, while I was in Paris and even before, I had lots of trouble with uh, depression and anxiety. And you know, I'm not, I'm in, I'm on medication. I've, I've done therapy, and now I'm feeling great because I'm here. Also, that's helped a lot. But when I came to Iceland, I had this idea in mind, and that's pretty crazy, I know. Uh, basically, that's so I came in. Uh, it was end of October, beginning of November, and uh, so I was just. I'd, I had just actually failed my uh, last year of studies and I was supposed to take it again the next year. And when I came to Iceland, what I told myself is that, you know, I had already had suicidal thoughts before. And what I told myself was that basically if I... Basically either something happened in Iceland and something changed in my mentality or my spirit or something like that in my head, the way I felt so either it changed either or I would just you know go out in the snow or on the glacier and just die that was kind of it wasn't a plan but it was an idea that was here and coming to Iceland actually helped me with uh, a lot of things because basically before coming here uh, I had a life that I hated in a city in a city that I hated with people that I didn't enjoy hanging out with I just felt constantly oppressed and alone and coming to Iceland was actually the first decision I took ever in my life that was I'm doing this for myself but I had never really done something that it was entirely mine and coming here that was pretty much it you know it was just something that I did and I had absolutely no plans I just came here and improvised. I just spent two days in Reykjavik. I spent all my money there. And then I uh, hitchhiked on the south coast. I ended up in Skogar. I slept in a shed in Skogar. 
in October. It was pretty cold. And then I uh, met uh, Thorder, who was the, this wonderful guy who owns the... He's the founder of the museum in Skogar. And he's one of the memories of Iceland. He's just... He's amazing. And he drove me to Beek and dropped me at the hostel. And at the time, it was still legal to work as a volunteer in tourism, which it's not legal now, or at least it's very frowned upon. Uh, and so they just told me, well, if you want, you can just get a room here and you just work and, you know, you can stay here for as long as you like. And so I worked about four hours per day, you know, cleaning rooms and stuff like that. And the rest of the time I was just free to enjoy Vik and uh, I met some wonderful people. So there's Isa, the owner of the hostel. She's still one of my best friends in Vik. You know, that was it. And that's all of that is why I'm here now. That's how I fell in love with this place. And what I realized while I was in Vik is that I felt at home here. And it's a feeling that I actually never had before, not even in France. Can you remember how it was, how it manifested, this feeling? I have no idea. I didn't really have a physical feeling or anything, no. But uh, I remember there was just one moment that felt particularly magical. And I don't know if it's that particular moment when I decided uh, that it would be at that point. But it was so uh, I was living in a, in a house up the hill. Uh, there was a night where there was a huge storm. There was just like wind blowing. Uh, and it happens sometimes that there are like uh, power outages here in Vik. Uh, and so I was just walking from the hostel to the house up the hill. And suddenly all the lights went off in the village. And I saw this huge green thing in the sky. And that was my first experience of northern lights. I had never seen that before. And just imagine that it's just like nature saying like, turn off the lights and enjoy the show. Yeah. And that was... That's like the most magical moment that I remember from, from that time. Otherwise, you know, it's just I'm not good with memories in general. We talked some more about books, music, magic, and how he sees love as the ultimate form of magic. The room regained its former calm as Mauna demonstrated a form of meditative breathing, while Mauna the dog sighed on the floor. Then, goodbyes, and we parted ways. The wind howled and the ocean crashed hard on the shore that night, but the moments spent with Mauni had lent it a calmness. And with that calm in the storm, be it by the forces of nature or the workings of the mind, we end this episode of Stories from the Atlantic, hoping that you will join us again next week for the legacy and memory of Grandpa Dave.